Hey, it's Jordan. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Jill Stein. She was the Green Party uh, nominee for the 2016 uh, presidential election and uh, is still uh, on, you know, in the fight as ever. Uh, I thought of you as one of the first people I wanted to speak to because, unfortunately, uh, other than Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, I have really haven't seen not just presidential candidates, but really politicians particularly politicians that used to embrace Julian Assange and WikiLeaks when it was convenient for them, uh, speak out. And I knew uh, you would have a lot of uh, to say about this, as well as uh, why this is a violation not only of freedom of the press, but international law. So wanted to ask you first, um, you know, I read the indictment three times, mm-hmm. and I would say 97% of it seems like they're basically stretching what is journalistic practice today, practicing, being practiced as we speak. I mean, there's quote-unquote journalists goading sources to give them more, like in D.C. and New York and internationally. That's just part of the game. And really, the the bulk of it, it seems to be just three words or four words that were said Mm -hmm. saying, um, uh, you know, no luck yet. Or something like that, where they're saying Julian Assange said to Chelsea Manning in reference to I haven't had any success cracking a password. I thought it was very flimsy. I didn't see the full sentence that that was said in. Uh, And I, based on the fact that the Obama DOJ had all this information and felt they couldn't prosecute. What are you what is your uh, thoughts on this? Their, Their whole thing is Julian Assange basically was working with Chelsea Manning to, quote, Hack a password. Yeah, exactly. And that whole approach is an effort to sidestep a direct assault on press freedom and publishing, knowing that there would be incredible outrage and sympathy and support and revolt if they did that. So they tried to do an end run, which is really what the Obama Justice Department also tried to do for many, many years and concluded that there was no way to indict uh, Julian Assange without indicting also the uh, publishers of the New York Times and the Washington Post and everybody else. So they backed off and said no. But, you know, the Trump uh, Department of Justice, so-called, you know, wanted to take a, quote, fresh look. And like the way they've approached so many other things. It's just incredibly stupid and ignorant of the realities of law and the Constitution. And you can't, uh, you can't attack the things that journalists and publishers do without also attacking just the basic uh, press freedoms. And <clears throat> by zeroing in on these things that publishers and journalists do, they're especially targeting whistleblowers and the kinds of things that publishers and journalists do in order to protect whistleblowers who are absolutely critical to our democracy. And one person who's really spoken out beautifully on this, no surprise, is Daniel Ellsberg and other whistleblowers as well, including uh, Edward Snowden and uh, Glenn Greenwald, for that matter. You know, And they've really articulated with great, um, shall we say, uh, knowledge about constitutional law and great knowledge of 
of this case that this just can't be done and that the things that journalists do, like encouraging a source to provide more information or like helping to protect the anonymity of the source is not only okay for journalists to do, they're, they're required to do that. They're ethically supposed to do that. So um, nothing in that indictment from my reading and my reading of um, attorneys and constitutional experts who know much more about this than me, there is nothing that really constitutes um, uh, a violation of good practice and law in what uh, Assange is being charged with here. And I think it's important to note, first, I say with the caveat, I don't just trust what the government and CIA tell me. So I don't know the wider context of that sentence. No luck yet. It, they could have taken it out of context, what he was saying. It could be about something completely different than a password. I mean, the CNN and Washington Post and all these types like to breathlessly regurgitate, but I'd like the evidence. But let's say, and, and just to add to that, Jordan, even if he did help, um, a ch you know, figure out a, a password, even if he did help break a code, that didn't, that was not going to access new information. That's what that I was about to ask going you. Going to protect the identity of the source. So this is not a matter of intruding into um, security systems or, you know, national security computers and so on. This was a matter of protecting the source, which is, um, you know, that is best practice. And to indict and to, um, uh, you know, drag a, a journalist on foreign soil who's not even a citizen of this country to subject them to basically espionage laws for citizens of this country is an outrageous thing to do. And you mention how this violates international laws. You know, press freedom is international, and it must be. If we don't respect the integrity of journalism, then what the U.S. is doing to Julian Assange can be done by China or Russia or Iran to our journalists or other international journalists for exposing their secrets. Exposing secrets, as Daniel Ellsberg um, keeps saying beautifully, it's essential for democracy. It's not just okay, it's something that we rely on as a cross-check on power. And what we see, unfortunately, are all these mainstream media moguls, and not all of them. There are, you know, there are more who are standing up now who are beginning to get it. And that's been really encouraging to see an editorial in The Guardian today um, uh, in The New York Times, an op-ed piece uh, just yesterday. Some, you know, surprising people who don't like Julian Assange at all. This is not a popularity contest. This is about protecting basic press freedoms. And it's not just for journalists. It's for us. The Vietnam War never would have been ended had Daniel Ellsberg not had the courage to leak the Pentagon Papers and had um, uh, Mike Gravel, who was a senator at the time, not had the courage to actually read the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record. They both did so, you know, but especially Ellsberg, at incredible risk to their life, their safety, their, their well-being. Uh, Ellsberg, you know, was being charged with essentially a life prison, a life sentence in prison. So, you know, and he was then exonerated, uh, basically on account of government overreach. But 
we depend on whistleblowers to know what our government is doing, which brings up the whole subject that I know you've covered, I think, in a previous podcast on what it was that Assange and WikiLeaks exposed in these Iraq war logs and Afghanistan war logs. And it's not only that. I mean, there's so much by way of waste, fraud and abuse, war crimes, human rights violations, outright deception of of the American people by our own government and other governments uh, of their people. So these are absolutely critical functions that serve all of us. So by standing up for Julian Assange right now, we're standing up for our democracy, which is really on life support as we speak. And, you know, I think you've alluded to this yourself, that what's going on right now really is a symptom of an empire that is doubling down uh, as it tries to defend its global hegemony in the face of an increasingly multipolar world. Um, you know, with the rise of China in particular, you know, empire is a little concerned. And it's really important to establish that we are talking about empire. Some people just really don't like the use of that word. And I'm hearing that, you know, on my social media in a big way, really being attacked for using these words. But if you don't use those words, I'm sorry, you just really cannot connect the dots here and frame what's going on. Because this is taking place in a setting of militarism that's just gone off the rails as it occupies now, according to Trump's new budget, it would occupy about 70% of our discretionary spending. And that is if you add in the cost of the Veterans Administration, which is part of having this, you know, overblown and toxic military is that we have a lot of sick people uh, to care for, who deserve that care, deserve more care, in fact, as well as housing and jobs and all the rest. Uh, but, you know, you add in those costs and it begins to cannibalize all of our resources. So we see austerity at home. We see, you know, a bankrupt budget. We see, um, you know, the assault on our democracy and authoritarianism. You cannot have a massive military and have a functioning democracy. And we see that not only in military budgets, we see it in military operations, which now we've got special operations going on in like 149 countries. That's about three quarters of all the countries that there are. You know, we have NATO, which is expanding uh, massively. And we saw the secretary general of NATO speak before Congress, cheered by both parties for invoking greater military expenditures, basically proposing that our allies double their expenditures. So, you know, really so that NATO can have even more of a, of a you know, an absolutely over the top outrageous budget. You see regime change, which has become sort of the norm, not only the threats against Venezuela and Cuba and Iran, but we see blowback. Look at what's happening in Libya right now, which really ought to be a poster child of, of regime change. We're seeing absolute disaster in Libya. Or look at the crisis at our southern border. It's really a crisis of human rights in the countries in which we have exercised regime change. It's Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras, from which people are basically running for their lives. So regime change is a disaster. And, you know, we have um, 
you know, a continuing commitment to this outrageous um, notion of regime change, and it's being supported by both parties. And that's why you don't see Democrats now really standing up. In fact, you see them like Debbie Wasserman Schultz. You know, we see them leading the charge for more of this catastrophic regime change. And then I just want to name two others, not to go into them, but it's part of this picture of militarism that's gone off the rails. Um, add to, you know, the things that, that we've just uh, mentioned, add to that the, um, uh, the nuclear arms race, which is now going full tilt, extremely uh, endangering to all of us, but especially our friends in Western Europe. It's unbelievable what's going on there. And the minute we withdraw from the Inter Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the latest treaty to go down, yes, there have probably been Russian violations, but um, those are uh, fixable within the context of the treaty. And, you know, Russia is... is uh, pushing at the limits of the treaty because it's been surrounded. You know, this is like, think about the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is like the Cuban Missile Crisis on steroids for the Russians. So, you know, we need to think beyond just being a bully in the, in the schoolyard, <clears throat> you know, or... Remember if, remember, if you point out that Russia has missiles from every direction pointed at it, you're a puppet. <laughs> but that's the facts. I mean, Russia, yeah. but, but NATO's encroachment and all that... We're basically doing to Russia what the Cuban Missile Crisis was uh, threatening us. Um, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, I was, you know, I, I would just note also that the Cold War is a part of this picture, which goes hand in hand with the resurgence of, of the nuclear arms race. This is not a livable world, you know, and either we will die by the law of the jungle or we will live by the rule of law internationally. And, you know, this is a really important time to be standing up uh, and supporting international law. And in my own mind, I can't think of a way forward within this box of two political parties that are in bed with war contractors and Wall Street and the fossil fuel industry, which is why, in my mind, political independence is really critical in order for us to move forward. Ask you, and you could tell me if I'm totally crazy with this analogy, but you know the history of the United States, besides obviously, you know, genocide of Native Americans and kidnapping and you know land theft, you know, was uh, of running away and trying to get out from under uh, a colonial imperialist Great Britain. But when I look at the United States now, what's the difference between the British? Basically, uh, you know, ki killing rebels that dissented, buying off the newspapers, you know, like newspaper newspapers were basically PR for the British back in that day, um, you know, buying off spies. Uh, so rebels, you know, would spy for the British. What is the difference between basically what we were trying to flee and now you have, you know, essentially the CIA being the arbiter of what is and what is not journalism? That would be like Adolf Hitler being the arbiter of what is a, uh, a nationalist German citizen, what's a good national or, or, or uh, an, uh, a true native German citizen and what is not. Uh, you could tell me if that's too much, but what is the difference between the CIA deciding what is journalism, what is not? You have a system now where essentially Google is deciding. Google is deciding what is true and what is not through their algorithms, through rankings. They're suppressing not just independent media, but anti-war voices. Uh, mm -hmm. All of this is connected to Julian Assange because I do not think 
Julian Assange would be targeted if he leaked, you know, sex photos of uh, Dick Durbin. You know, <laughs> just an example. Not that those exist. He's 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 one, WikiLeaks is one of the major news sources that has shown the crimes of the CIA and the deep state. I'm not seeing much of a difference between what the, the history that I have read of us fleeing the British and the conditions that are uh, really mounting up. And now with this prosecution. Yeah, yeah, very much. And, you know, we have we have a mixed history and, you know, part of our history entailed uh, breaking the change of a monarchy that was ruling us, but also breaking the change of corporations, you know, in the East India Tea Company that was also ruling us. Um, so there was part of our history that was a, um, you know, a, a quest for uh, freedom and liberty at the same time that we were also enslaving people and uh, conducting uh, genocide. Um, and, you know, I just I just want to say that uh, maybe we're not quite ready to say that that Nazis are the equivalent of our of our CIA. You know, I, I don't think we're quite there, um, but certainly we are on a very dangerous and slippery slope. And there's no question that we are a nation with very uh, severe and dangerous authoritarian institutions now. And it's going to be a real uh, challenge to change that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that history has to serve us warning and it should uh, inspire us to embrace the better side of our historical selves, you know, where our social movements and our everyday people, you know, because, um, well, I can't say my knowledge of uh, the American Revolution is that great, but, you know, there were certainly ordinary uh, farmers uh, who didn't have slaves, you know, who were leading the charge to throw off the stranglehold of monarchy. And the major social movements of our era, from the abolition of slavery to uh, the the fight for uh, women's right to vote to the labor movement, you know, have really been led by everyday ordinary people standing up and fighting a very oppressive system. So we've had that recurrently, but we've also found the means of standing up and uh, struggling peacefully for our better selves. And that's where we are right now. I'm pretty, you know, persuaded um, for quite some time, really since the Occupy movement, that we have enormous power. We have incredible latent power. And the, um, you know, the political predators rely on um, snake oil and smoke and mirrors to hijack our movements, to hijack our movements, to intimidate them, um, you know, and to silence them. And we're in a big moment of that right now. Russiagate, you know, uh, has certainly been used to renew McCarthyism between warmongering, censorship, and um, the suppression of political dissent. You know, we're in a really dangerous moment. And, you know, both parties are bought into this. The Democrats are basically leading the charge. So it's a real struggle right now, and the question is whether the Democrats will be able to 
maintain a progressive momentum when it's really being smothered from inside the Democratic Party, whether you look at single payer and the movement for Medicare for all, which is now full of decoys, you know, so-called decoys in order to sabotage the real solution. Uh, you know, that's going to be a very tough fight. And that's usually what happens. The Democrats are very good at advocating for Medicare for all until they have power. You know, why hasn't it been passed in Massachusetts or in California, where there's always been a massive veto-proof majority in our legislatures or all three branches of government have been Democratic, yet somehow we can't get there. And the states that are most Democratic are also most, um, you know, ha have the biggest uh, economic disparities. And yeah, they do some things right, but not a whole lot, you know, that don't stop fracking uh, in California, for example, uh, or, you know, look at the Green New Deal, you know, and I'm really glad that it's being discussed and that AOC has kind of taken it on. That's wonderful. But um, look at what's happening to it. You know, it's basically on the shelf, although it's great, people are talking about it and it has really raised expectations, but I'm not clear we're gonna get there at all. It's gotta go with a job guarantee. There's no way you're ever going to overcome the divide and conquer between labor and the environment. You're gonna have competing interests unless we really ensure that the Green New Deal includes a jobs guarantee, uh, the right to a, a job, healthcare, uh, education, affordable housing, and the abolition of student debt as well as free public higher education. They have to be a part of this comprehensive uh, solution. And, you know, a party controlled more than ever by Wall Street um, and also uh, the, the war industry and the fossil fuel industry, they're not going to do it for us. So, you know, I think it's really important in a nutshell to pass ranked choice voting because at that point it becomes impossible to carry out this uh, campaign of silencing political resistance. And voices of political opposition are really being silenced and demonized right now when we could all be working on this together. Progressive forces could join force and then really hold Democrats accountable if they also have to answer to uh, non-corporate candidates and parties. Right. Two things I'll say before the next question. One when you're talking about the war machine and the military-industrial complex expanding, it should be told to the audience that Trump wants to now go to $750 billion and the Democrats' brave counter is reportedly $733 billion. So that's where you know we're going as far as the Democratic Party. Secondly, just to be clear, of course, I'm not comparing uh, CIA with Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. I think what I'm getting at is authoritarian figures, whether in the CIA or Mussolini, Hitler, why are we allowing authoritarian um, uh, factions? They're not, CIA did not send anyone to gas chambers that I know of, so thanks for correcting me on that. But my point is, why is the CIA the arbiter of what is and is not journalist, journalism? That's a scary thing if you're letting the, the very agency that is most at threat to whistleblowers and truth tellers being being the arbiter of what who is and who is not a journalism i would say that's a conflict of interest wouldn't you absolutely and can i um pile on there um because you have the security state now you know not only exerting incredible power 
in censorship and so on. But they're also like the there's this hero worship going on in the media. So you have the talking heads from the security state, either currently or like John Brennan, you know, retired. And they're supposed to be giving us, you know, the real scoop on the news at the same time that the big mainstream corporate media silences the voices of opposition. I mean, where's the other side on this? We're only hearing one side and we're really hearing from the most biased propagandizing side um, of the discussion. And I just want to recognize the word propaganda because it was something we used to discuss a lot, you know, decades ago. We talked about propaganda and then we were protected from propaganda for a period of a couple decades. But those protections in the United States from propaganda by our own um, security state, our own military intelligence, those were repealed. And I believe it was 2013, might have been 2014. But approximately then, the ban on propagandizing the American public was rescinded. It was removed. So we again became subject to propaganda. So it's very hard for us to know what's real and what's not and what is the hand of the security state. And I just want to invoke one example. And that is, you know, in, in the course of Russiagate, the social media uh, prowess of Russia, so-called, was demonstrated by a report by a cyber security uh, private corporation called New Knowledge. And New Knowledge wrote a report, which is actually submitted to one of the intelligence um, uh, committees in Congress. And the New Knowledge report was alleging, you know, all this stuff that Russia did and oh, how powerful they were. They never demonstrate the power. They just show all these ridiculous memes, you know, like, oh, here's, you know, click if Click if you like Jesus, you know, and and that was supposed to be how uh, Russia, you know, won over African-Americans, for example, which is an incredibly insulting um, uh, proposition. But then lo and behold, you know, and, and of course, this was also smearing me as someone who supposedly benefited from this prowess of uh, Russian social media, which is never demonstrated. They never show one mind being changed. Not to interrupt, but The Washington Post now is a new propaganda piece about Russia, how they targeted Bernie Sanders supporters to suggesting it was just the Russian trolls that swung Bernie Sanders supporters. Go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's really incredible. Um, but I wanted to just make the point about new knowledge that after they've submitted this report, then suddenly it came out that new knowledge, its, um, its CEO and one of its other uh, executives were basically caught red-handed by creating a false flag Russian interference operation in the Senate election in Alabama in 2017. So in other words, these guys who are sort of hyping their own business and trying to drum up business for themselves by hyping the Russian threat, well, guess what? They turn out to be part of that Russian threat. Who knows how much of that? And, you know, so you've got these incredible cloak and dagger games going on. It's very hard to sort out who's doing what. But put it this way, um, certain levels of interference 
have always gone on. I mean, I have no doubt that Russians were trying to mess with our elections uh, in the same way that we mess with elections. In fact, no one has messed with other people's elections more. And we don't stop with messing with elections. We actually overturn administrations. We, you know, we concoct coups and and wars and so on. So, you know, it's it, you just you can't you can't complain about Russia's nuclear weapons without acknowledging that we have nuclear weapons and we need a body of international law, not just to control those nuclear weapons, but to eliminate those nuclear weapons. And we need similar approaches to the issues of cybersecurity, cyber spying, um, you know, cyber fraud and hacking and so on. There are many ways we can protect our elections. And uh, we got some really big fish to fry here about which there's no question, like $6 billion worth of free advertising given to Donald Trump, twice as much as Hillary Clinton got, which was twice as much as Bernie Sanders got, which was about a thousand times what uh, myself and, and Gary Johnson were allowed. You know, so, so we need a level playing field because if the powers that be continue to just serve the, you know, uh, the the war contractors and the fossil fuel giants and, and Wall Street, we don't have long on this planet. The clock is ticking and that thing is blowing up in our faces right now, especially low-income communities, especially communities of color and immigrants who are really living, uh, you know, living examples of you know, the 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 future that's coming for us all, if we don't all get together and assert our power as uh, citizens of conscience in the planet, you know, I think there's incredible power, especially cross borders. People do not want this, uh, you know, this regime of nuclear weapons and endless war and austerity on health care and education and housing. It's being felt all over the world. This is really the, the follow-on to this era of neoliberalism that's been embraced by Democrats and Republicans. It is come to a grinding halt, and it's time for us everyday people to stand up and demand what we deserve. And part of that, you know, a really important enabling foundation uh, is ending the two-party tailspin by passing ranked choice voting in your state. And people can find out about ranked choice voting um, on my on my social media, for example, at, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Jill Stein, that's DR, no period, Dr. Jill Stein. Um, and there are several sites that are all over our social media that are promoting this. We have a referendum going on right now in Massachusetts in 2020, uh, we expect to pass uh, ranked choice voting and follow on to the progress that was made by the state of Maine, which liberates voters so that we can actually lead with our vision of the future. You don't have to walk into the bowling booth. <clears throat> Excuse me. You don't have to go and vote against the candidate you hate the most. <laughs> you, you know, because where does that get us? You're never expressing your vision of the future and moving us towards it if you're just voting against what you hate. We have to be able to vote for what we want. Democracy needs a moral compass, and that's us, folks. And we need to unleash that moral compass uh, through a number of election reforms, but that's one of them. Uh, otherwise, we see basically voter, it's another form of voter suppression. 
which essentially suppresses a more um, uh, inspired and visionary uh, politics that can serve us now and into the future. I want to read to you, uh, it was when Mike Pompeo was CIA director, he made a comment that I think is very dangerous and I also think is very ignorant of what the First Amendment actually is. But he said Julian Assange has no First Amendment freedoms. He's sitting in an embassy in London. He's not a U.S. citizen. Um, it seems like this is part of their basis for his, uh, you know, this indictment. But my understanding of the First Amendment it's not to govern just U.S. citizens. It's anyone exposed to our court system. That's why even uh, for terrorists, uh, there was an argument among people like you and me. They should be tried in our court system. It seems like they are not only throwing away uh, international law. We haven't even talked about that it's illegal to revoke asylum <laughs> unless uh, very specific reasons, which don't apply here. But what, what is your take? Because it seems like... The Obama administration, we could say a lot of things about, but at least they even they tried to mangle the law to get Julian Assange, but they they didn't. Uh, But the Trump administration here, they don't seem to understand the First Amendment uh, and essentially, like we talked about, are are trying to redefine what journalism to box Julian Assange out from that definition. Yeah, I mean, we have things to thank the Obama administration for, and we have things to, you know, to to really hold them to account for, like resurrecting the use of the Espionage Act to go after whistleblowers in the first place, you know, which is why, in my mind, we cannot solve the critical issues of our democracy, our civil liberties, press freedom, endless war inside of the two-party tailspin. And we're trading off one against the other, you know, and I I think it doesn't work. I think we really have to hold our nation and the world to a higher standard. And it's not just a higher standard in abstraction, but it's a higher standard under which we can live, you know, under which we can survive, because the law of the jungle is the alternative to the rule of law. We need the rule of law. The law of the jungle is you know, it's it's rough going under any circumstances, but when you have nuclear weapons, it's over for everybody. Nuclear weapons are the great equalizer here. And, you know, they're being brought out now and they're being unleashed and liberated, you know, in, in very scary numbers. And so it's really important, you know, we need press freedoms. Uh, I am not enough of a constitutional scholar, I admit, you know, um, my background is really in science and 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 medicine, so I'm uh, I'm catching up on a lot of other things right now. But you know, in the UK, for example, they don't have a First Amendment, but they have an expectation of press freedom, and you know, and they also fight for it. You know, if you listen to John Pilger, you know, a renowned uh, journalist who's been very involved in the fight uh, surrounding WikiLeaks. You know, he also talks about the fight for press freedoms uh, in the UK. So, you know, it's not as though the U.S. has special human beings, you know, who deserve, um, you know, the presumption of innocence or who deserve civil liberties and free speech and the right to protest. You know, these are the things that our country is judging other countries by when we care to apply a yardstick. And then there are other countries where the U.S., um, 
you know, uh, White House for official foreign policy in Congress, you know, they're totally happy to look the other way and support. What is it like 75 percent of all dictatorships are being so, some some figure to that effect. There's a large number of all, you know, dictators and thugs in power are being supported uh, by the U.S. government. That's not OK either. You know, uh, I think we just we're on one boat right now. That boat is going down and we are going to sink together or we're going to sail together. And the way that we sail together is, you know, we got to lift everybody up and we have to stop hoarding the the resources of the world. You know, we need a we need a massive Marshall plan for the countries in which we have inflicted regime change and who are now continuing to struggle with poverty and, um, you know, and chaos and violence. You know, we need to make that right again, particularly south of our border uh, in Honduras, uh, Guatemala, and El Salvador, whose economies have been absolutely devastated. So there are solutions here. There are absolutely solutions. And at the end of the day, they really depend on us uh, recognizing our power and deciding to raise the bar for everyone. Two more questions, and I'll let you go. One, um, you know, I, I make I don't hide uh, hide it that I, I'm a fan of Bernie Sanders, but we can't sit, we can't uh, let it go that he's been silent on uh, Julian Assange's uh, arrest. As far as I can tell, he hasn't said anything. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard has spoken out against it. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Not in, not in terms of the horse race of 2020 politics, but you know, if Bernie Sanders is going to be serious about uh, cutting the military budget and ending uh, feckless wars, um, shouldn't he be serious about, you know, basically one of the premier journalists who we haven't even said has won more more awards than most corporate journalists could dream of uh, being silent on this? Absolutely. And I think it goes hand in hand with having the courage to stand up against the new McCarthyism. And this is really kind of an, an instance of that. So, yeah, I think um, this is a very hard fight to fight, but I don't think you can duck it. If you're going to go into office, you know, and and fight this, you know, this corruption and the power of the security state and the military industrial complex, which has now become a military industrial intelligence security complex media as well. You know, this is a very big um uh, force, dark force, uh, to struggle with. And you're not going to just like surprise them once you get into office, you have to go into office with your troops, kind of, you know, your ground troops, your support ready to struggle with you. So, you know, one way or the other, this is going to come back to bite him. Mm -hmm. Last question. Uh, underneath everything we've talked about today is essentially the United States's uh, imperialist domination of the world and how that has really, really negatively affected us domestically. It would be lost on me if I didn't mention uh, we're approaching five years uh, in a week and a half where Flint, Michigan has not had clean water. And when we talk about journalism, uh, I think journalism has left the building because when you want to talk about a national emergency, an American city has not had drinking water that's clean for five years. Uh, just your thoughts on that and the ramifications of essentially leaving poor poison people to fend for themselves. This is, um, you know, a sign of the times, both the failure of the media, um, as well as the incredible abuse of 
marginalized communities. And what's happening in Flint is happening in many other cities around the country. And the water, you know, happens to be one aspect of it, you know, but in so many ways, uh, people, especially poor people are being poisoned, like the PFOs, um, you know, related to uh, military uh, production and, and bases and so on. You know, we, we're, we're not going to survive this for very much longer, and everyone is very much at risk for it. So, um, you know, this has to be fixed. And our military expenditures, which are devouring, cannibalizing the vast majority of our discretionary funds, they need to be applied to a Green New Deal. And as part of the Green New Deal, we rebuild our infrastructure to make it healthy and sustainable and fossil fuel free and free of toxic substances, which are generally derived from fossil fuels as well. So it's not rocket science how to replace pipes or rebuild bridges or build high speed rail and wind towers and geothermal heating. This is a massive undertaking. This is like the New Deal, but it's green. And because Flint is really a poster child, not of the past, but of the future, it's what the future looks like for all of us in the absence of getting it together. And let's just do the right thing. And that means let's make wars for oil obsolete. Let's uh, demilitarize our economy and our foreign policy and put that money it's, you know, this is all the money we need. But in fact, there will be even more resources available because fossil fuels and its impacts are an incredible health burden. It's estimated that somewhere around 75% of our health expenditures, and we spend over $3 trillion a year between public and private sources. I mean, this is an enormous uh, drain on our well-being as well as our health and our economic well-being. That money uh, is largely going to deal with chronic diseases that could be prevented by ending pollution and creating a healthy food system and integrating active transportation, walking and biking into a public transit system. So it's, it's not rocket science how to fix this. The only thing, you know, uh, the missing link really is a a public movement, you know, a social movement, and throwing off these chains of, of fear and um, self-doubt and intimidation that are being inflicted on us. We own that future. That future is being assassinated in front of our very eyes right now. You get a big movement when you start putting together, you know, millennials and Gen Xers who are all in debt and who can't get out of it, and the jobs aren't there, and they're not coming. When you put together you know, the movement for, uh, to abolish student debt for free public higher education, together with the climate movement, you know, the movement for uh, healthy water, uh, for um, indigenous protection, for immigrant rights, for healthcare as a human right, you know, uh, for a jobs guarantee, that's almost everybody, you know, except for the 1%. And if we had a coordinated strike, for example, if everybody was out there striking on the same day for a, uh, a convergent solution that is a Green New Deal that would ensure healthcare, education, housing, uh, the end of student debt, and the right to a job in a, um, in a fossil, fuel, fossil fuel free future, 
that's a lot of people coming out. That would bring the wheels of destruction to a grinding halt very quickly. And we could fund that new way forward by demilitarizing, which is what we have to do anyhow if we're going to get out of here alive. So there's a win-win. The missing ingredient is you and me, and it's all about us uh, standing up together and not taking no for an answer. And I would definitely encourage viewers, I have done so after our last interview, to look more into ranked choice voting, uh, which I truly believe is would democratize voting uh, in this country. It makes too much sense, and that's why the powers that be do not want it. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Stein, and uh, we'll talk soon. Great talking with you, Jordan.